Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. In this episode, the last part of the Kingdom of God class, we go through the most commonly misunderstood texts about the kingdom and explain how to interpret them within their own context. In this final session, we'll look at nine different texts in an effort to clear away any lingering biblical objections people have to seeing the kingdom and accepting it in all its grandeur. I hope you have enjoyed this class. It's been a lot of work, but I think it's definitely something that is needed. This is Lecture 15 of the Kingdom of God class, originally taught at the Atlanta Bible College. To take this class for credit, please contact ABC so you can do the work necessary for grade. Here now is Episode 106, Misunderstood Texts. I have a little extra time for this one, which is good because I have eight different ones that came to mind when I was brainstorming what scriptures might... Christians who don't believe in the kingdom bring against you. And so what I'd like to do is just work through each one together. And I want to recommend this resource here. Some of you are probably familiar with it. It's called Rested Scriptures by Ron Abel. It's a Christadelphian handbook. It has some things in it that I would strongly disagree with. So I wouldn't recommend it to every Tom, Dick, or Harry. You don't hear that expression much anymore. <laughs> But uh, I recommend it to you as far as their explanations of these particular verses. Um, they're, they're probably good, relatively helpful. First up to bat, we have Matthew chapter 16. Some will not taste death until the kingdom comes. So Matthew 16, verse 28 says, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. From this verse, people say, some people have concluded, that before His apostles died, the kingdom must have come. And you can see why they would think that, right? What w how would you answer this? Anybody want to offer an explanation before I give you mine? I think this was talking about the, the like the next verse, the next chapter is the transfiguration. Yes. So why do you think the transfiguration in the next chapter is the kingdom coming? I think it's a picture of the kingdom coming. Yes, that's exactly what I would say. Same exact thing. Let's read that. Uh, so in the very next verse, and remember there are no chapters in the original that Matthew wrote. So it says, You will not see his death till you see the kingdom coming. And after six days, Jesus took him with him, Peter and James and John his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you one for Moses, one for Elijah. Peter's always great in a pinch. Yes, Peter, we're here so that you can make us tents. He was, he was still speaking when, it's so funny, like Peter's like still like going on, like muttering and rambling. Suddenly a bright 
cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. <laughs> it's funny, like Peter's talking, and God's like, Listen to him, <laughs> to Jesus. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So what they received here was a vision of the kingdom. And the reason why I say of the kingdom, as Rebecca suggested, is because you have Jesus glorified, you have Moses and Elijah present. Moses and Elijah are dead. So how are they alive in the vision? Well, if it was a vision of the kingdom, Moses and Elijah would actually be there. So I think that's a good explanation of what Jesus was talking about here. They saw the kingdom. They had a vision of the kingdom. All right, next up to Everybody okay with that one? All right, next up to bat, the kingdom is within you. Luke chapter 17. Go ahead and flip over to Luke. Luke 17 gives this account where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the Pharisees are trying to trick Jesus into giving him, well, maybe not trick, but trying to dare him to give them a sign like, hey, Jesus, you're out here preaching this kingdom. When in the world is it coming? Why don't you uh, give us something that's falsifiable here, Jesus, something that's concrete that we can sink our teeth into. And Jesus, uh, one thing to keep in mind just before we even read this is that when Jesus is talking to his critics and to his enemies, you have to be careful how you take that because a lot of times Jesus doesn't give them a clear answer. And this is especially in the case of the Gospel of John. Like almost never does Jesus clarify or properly explain what he's saying in the Gospel of John when he's criticized. Almost always he makes it worse for them to show them how absurd their initial objection was. Okay, now this is a different gospel, it's gospel of Luke, but Jesus is the same person. He's being criticized, and so he's giving them a comeback. Being asked by the Pharisees, Luke 17, 20, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Older translations say the kingdom of God is within you. What does the NASB say there? In your midst. In your midst, right. Okay. Does anybody have one that says kingdom, probably Anna, you, yours says kingdom is within you? Mine within says you. it's among you. Yeah, so among you, within you, in your midst. And then he goes to talk to his disciples. So how would you respond to this if somebody says to you, silly Adventist, you think the kingdom is some future reality? Jesus says the kingdom is within you. It's a spiritual reality. It's not a physical reality. How would you come back at that? I would say the kingdom is both right now, but not yet. You live out the kingdom like Jesus did, uh, performing miracles, raising people from the dead, but these people died again. They got sick again. Mm -hmm. So the kingdom isn't made perfect. Obviously, God's will is not being done here on the earth now, mm -hmm. but through his body, or through Christ's body, we see what the kingdom is like. So it is both here and not yet. Okay. 
It's both here and not yet. What were you going to say? Following the passage, he goes on to explain that about his second coming. Okay. And how that's going to be a visible reality. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good point because if somebody thinks that on the basis of this verse, the kingdom is not actually coming to the earth, that it's only a reality within them, then the next verse is going to be very difficult, like verse 22 and following, where Jesus goes on to talk to the disciples about what it's going to be like when the Son of Man comes. I have here for you a quote from Albert Nolan in his book, Jesus Before Christianity. He writes, Many Christians have been misled for centuries about the nature of God's kingdom by the well-known mistranslation of Luke 17.21. The kingdom of God is within you. Today, all serious scholars and translators agree that the text should be read, the kingdom of God is among you, or in your midst. The Greek word entos can mean within or among, but in the present context, to translate it within would mean that in answer to the Pharisees' question about when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus told them that the kingdom of God was within them. This would contradict everything else Jesus ever said about the kingdom or about the Pharisees. Look, if the kingdom's in someone, it's not in the Pharisees. They're the, dis they're the unbelievers, they're the critics, they're the ones that are challenging what God is doing. He goes on, Moreover, since every other reference to the kingdom presupposes that it is yet to come, and since the verb in every other clause in this passage is in the future tense, this verse must be understood to mean that one day they will find that the kingdom of God is suddenly and unexpectedly in their midst. So that's Albert Nolan explaining this verse. Another option, the option that I would go with, is that, and I, I've said this before to you, is that Jesus, because he represents the kingdom, and he's in their midst, looking at them, talking to them, that he's talking about himself. And I base that on that other text where in Mark 12, 34, Jesus has this conversation with the scribe. And when he it says, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And I think Jesus is there talking about himself. He is the king of the kingdom. If the President of the United States comes to a foreign country and is having some conversation, maybe he's slumming it on the streets in disguise, he's talking to some street person, and he says to them, you know, you're not far from the United States. You know, sort of like a mysterious way of, of hinting that, hey, this person is a representative of that country. So Jesus is saying, you're not far from the kingdom of God. I think that's referring to himself. And so when he says to the Pharisees, look, the kingdom of God is in your midst. He's like, you're looking at him. You're looking at the representative of the age to come. Or maybe Albert Nolan has a better take on this, where he says that one day they're going to wake up and suddenly see the kingdom of God right in front of their face, so to speak. So those are two options, in addition to the one Josiah mentioned as well. The third difficult text or misunderstood verse is where Jesus says, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. This is Matthew 24, verse 34. And here, Jesus is giving his Olivet Discourse, the teaching about what happens at the end of the world. A lot of people have a lot of different views on what Jesus meant. Was he talking about something that was going to happen within their lifetime? 
was he talking about something that was going to happen in our future? Was he talking about both? So there are a lot of different options for interpreting this, and it's not really my intention to get into all that. I will read this to you because we do need to wrestle with this verse because there are a group of people. Have you ever heard of preterists before? We got one, yeah. Preterists. These are Christians, mostly, who believe that all of the prophecies have already been fulfilled, that the kingdom has already come, whatever that means, and Jesus has already returned. That's a full preterist. A partial preterist believes that most things have already been fulfilled, especially in the book of Revelation. Partial preterists tend to bristle when you label them partial preterists because it seems like they're not fully committed. <laughs> but uh, th these are people who believe, I, I have a, a friend who's a, a, a full preterist. He believes everything's already been fulfilled. He believes the resurrection already happened, everything. And I'm like, so what's the point now? And he says, yeah, if you die, you just go to heaven. You'll be fine. I'm like, okay, well, we definitely are going to disagree on this. <laughs> so anyhow, Matthew 24, 29 says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So that's the part where Jesus comes back. It's very exciting. Matthew 24, 29 to 31. This, this kind of harkens back to what we looked at before with the kingdom judgment. I, only, I, I really probably should do a lot more with you on that because it is a pronounced theme in the prophets and with John the Baptist and Jesus and Paul and Peter. So, and Hebrews. The judgment is a significant aspect of the kingdom. When the kingdom comes, there is going to be judgment, which is why it says here, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Nobody's happy to see the Son of Man come. They're all like, oh, no, party's over. Right? Um, whereas he's gathering together the elect, which is pretty sweet for the elect, right? The chosen, those who have uh, been faithful. And then right after that, in verse 32, Jesus says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as this branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So as far as I understand it, there are three options for understanding this statement of Jesus. One is the preterist option where this generation refers to the generation he's talking to. That is, the generation of his original disciples. And what the preterist position says is that Jesus did come back in judgment in the destruction of Jerusalem through Titus, the Roman soldier, the Roman commander, who ended up destroying the temple. To me, it's not clear how that's the Son of the Son of Man appearing in the clouds. It's not clear to me what the gathering together of the elect is from that perspective. A partial preterist position says, yeah, Jesus came back in judgment, and the gathering together 
is Christians going out to preach to the world, which sounds a little funny to me, but take it or leave it, that's option one. Option two is that a generation, the word generation actually means a race, like a group of people. And the idea there is that the Jewish race will not pass away before the end. And then a third option is that this generation is not the people he's talking to necessarily, but the people who are there when all of this stuff happens. In other words, when the abomination of desolation occurs and then everything happens after that, leading up to the coming of the Son of Man, that generation, once these signs come, the end will occur within a generation. In other words, once you start seeing these things happen, this generation will not pass away until all things are fulfilled, which you always put, by the way, if you're doing a, writing a commentary or doing a, a, a teaching like this, you always put your position, which you think last, right? So you're like, some people think this, some people think, but I think, you know, so that's my, that's my idea there at the end. Um, I've got a sweet quote here from Craig Keener. Craig Keener writes, Old Testament prophets often grouped events together by their topic rather than their chronology. And in this discourse, Jesus does the same. He addresses what are grammatically two separate questions, the time of the temple's destruction and the time of the end. This is from his book, The IVP Bible Background Commentary on the New Testament, which is a worthwhile book to get. It's only one volume. If you, if you look up a verse in it, it does give you pretty useful, quick, useful information, uh, especially on any sort of verse that is controversial. Uh, not that I would agree with everything Craig Keener says here, but he does have a good take, I think, on a lot of things. So anyhow, what he says here is that Jesus is grouping together different events. If you read the Olivet Discourse, which we don't have time to get into today, but they asked really two questions. They asked, uh, that's his point here, grammatically two separate questions. They asked, when are these things going to take place? Talking about the destruction of the temple, and when is the sign of your coming? And that's, that's how they started it off. And so Craig Keener's saying, look, Jesus answers both of those questions by grouping together events that happen at different times, but he's just like mixing it all together as one. So in other words, the this generation part, so far as I understand correctly, is referring to the original disciples, but it's not referring to the coming of the Son of Man. How do you guys feel about that one? You feel okay? Can we go on? I'm still confused. You're still confused? All right, so these are our options. My position on it is that when he says this generation, he's talking about the generation that is like the fig tree, that sees the leaves turning. Uh, in the verse it said, verse 32, from the fig tree learn its lessons. As soon as this branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This generation that sees these signs that he's just mentioned. And we didn't read the whole chapter, but there are a bunch of signs there, including the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place. So, I mean, that would be the key sign. And, you know, that's one of the issues with preterism. Again, there's not a good abomination of desolation in the year 70. There are a couple of options, but they're pretty weak. So I, I'm just not really attracted to that position for that reason, at least with respect to the Olivet Discourse.
All right, The Thief on the Cross. Here's a classic. Today you'll be with me in paradise. This is from Luke 23, 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. I love that guy. In all the scene of the crucifixion and the suffering and the trial of Christ, he's the only one that stands up for my Jesus, <laughs> this criminal. Verse 42, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. As a result of this verse, there has been a lot of confusion in Christianity. <laughs> A lot of times people will identify the intermediate state as paradise, which to me sounds weird. I always think of paradise in terms of the Garden of Eden and in terms of, I don't know, being alive. Because he says today, a lot of people want to go that direction with it. They think paradise is a subterranean waiting area like Abraham's bosom or something. I don't know. However, Two verses seem to work strongly against the hypothesis that Jesus and the thief together went to paradise that very day. One is John 20, 17, where Jesus clearly says he has not yet ascended to his Father. Clearly. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And then, so we know he didn't go to heaven, so... What are we talking about? And then the other one is Matthew 12, 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus is going to be in the heart of the earth. He's going to be buried for three days and three nights. So he's not going to heaven. The only option left for you is to say, well, paradise is the heart of the earth, the grave. That to me just sounds really funky. Like dead people are not enjoying paradise. It just sounds weird, right? And it doesn't seem to fit with what Jesus was asked. Keep in mind, what did the thief ask Jesus? He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In other words, hey, I'm sticking up for you now. You stick up for me when you come into your kingdom. Now, they got the idea, you know, this is kind of another just side sidebar, but really cool. They got the idea, both of those thieves got the idea of Jesus being the Christ from the sign hanging above his head, right? Because it says King of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. But that's not what he asks. He says, remember me when you come in your kingdom, right? So for him, Christ is the one who's going to rule in the kingdom. You know, he might not be an upstanding citizen, but he's got decent Jewish theology in the background somewhere, this thief, right? And so he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Notice again, this is so temporal, it's not spatial. It's not like, remember me when you get into heaven, change your location to heaven. No, when the kingdom comes, it's a win. So Jesus answers him uh, and says to him, I, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. And if you take the today as when he's saying it rather than when he's going to paradise, the whole thing makes perfect sense and it's not difficult at all. In English, that's just moving a comma over a little bit. Um, and I, I think that's just a simple, elegant explanation. 
The guy says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In other words, remember me way down the line when you get into your kingdom. Jesus says, I don't have to wait until I get into my kingdom. I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. And so if you, and if you're the king, you, you can do that. That's called a pardon. Simple as that. What, any comments on that? It's just amazing that this is the only person that Jesus guarantees is coming to be. Yeah, I love that. Don't you love that? Yeah. I think it's cool. Okay, next one up is my kingdom is not of this world. John 18, 36, classic text. You, have you come across this one before, Talon? Yeah, it's frustrating. Frustrating, yeah. It's like funny, like these are the verses that people know in evangelicalism is like, the kingdom is within you. My kingdom is not of this world. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Like those are the ones that they're memorizing instead of the, I don't know, 50,000 verses we already looked at. <laughs> it's like a little handful over here. Not 50,000, but we looked at a lot of verses, wouldn't you say? Yeah. We've been versified, not diversified, but versified. Well-versed, thank you. John 18, 36, my kingdom, Jesus says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So this is Jesus talking, and what people will say is, you see, you, get, you got it wrong, Sean. You think his kingdom is earthly, political, and that it's something for the Jews, and restoration of Jerusalem, and it's going to have these animals in it, and it's going to be political? No, 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 no. You still have these crazy Jewish ideas in your head. You hear that even today, don't you? You're reading the Bible like a Jew. You have to realize that Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom's not of this world. Why are you trying to make the kingdom of this world? That's what people will say. So I've got a sweet quote here from N.T. Wright. He says, the world, as we've seen again and again, this is his commentary on John, part two, is in John the source of evil and rebellion against God. So his point there is that the world, in the Gospel of John, the phrase, the world, does not refer to planet Earth. Remember I, a while ago I asked you, close your eyes and imagine the Earth, and you saw the blue marble picture from the 1970s Apollo mission? Because that's like how we're trained to think of the world. Not in John's Gospel. In John's Gospel, the world refers to the source of evil and rebellion against God. It's the brokenness of society and individuals. That's what he means by the world. Jesus is denying that his kingdom has a this-worldly origin or quality. He is not denying that it has a this-worldly destination. That's why he has come into the world himself and why he has sent and will send his followers into the world. His kingdom doesn't come from this world, but it is for this world. That is the crucial distinction. Once again, his kingdom does not come from this world, but it is for this world. That is the crucial distinction. So this, this all relates to this Greek word, ek. The word ek means out from. It's sort of like the idea you're going out from something, right? And so Jesus says, my kingdom is not ek, this world. It's not out from this world. We've seen this over and over again that Christ's kingdom or God's kingdom, however you want to say it, comes from heaven, right? Matthew says kingdom of heaven. We see it in 
Philippians 3.20, my citizenship is in heaven. We saw it in Hebrews, they're looking for a heavenly country. Or Jesus says, your reward is great in heaven. So the whole idea of heaven is a storehouse. If you have a friend come over and they ask you for a drink and you say to them, hey, yeah, the beer's in the fridge. And that doesn't mean that you have to go into the fridge to get the beer. You don't climb into the refrigerator and drink the beer or the sweet tea or whatever drink you guys drink. It's saying, no, you get it from there and then you have it, just like a bank. When you retire, you don't move into the bank. When you retire, you take your money from the bank and use it in the world, okay? So heaven is this place of the storehouse where God stores up all our rewards and all this other good stuff we have to look forward to. And then when Jesus comes, he brings it with him. He goes to a far country to receive a kingdom and then comes again. And so it's not of this world in the sense that it's not going to be on the planet, but it's of this world in the sense that it's from this world. But it is definitely for this world. And that's important to keep straight. Ready for the next one? All right. John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you. I go and prepare a place for you. In this case, Jesus talks about going to his father's house. Have you guys ever come across this verse before? Talon, you have? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting one. John 14 is part of the Last Supper discourse or the Upper Room discourse. It's actually right after the Last Supper. It's chapter 13. And in John 14, verse 1, Jesus says... Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So, some say these rooms refer to dwelling places in heaven where the faithful go at death. How would you respond, Talon? The problem is, he says in three, that he will come again and then receive us to himself. So he has to come again first in order to be, or to enter into your room. Yeah. So Jesus comes again in verse three to receive us to himself, and that's when we get the inheritance. So what does it mean when he talks about preparing a place? <laughs> no, I don't think it is making the bed sweeping the floor. I think what it's talking about is some sort of role or station or authority, right, in the kingdom. Yeah. Did... And because he now is uh, between us and God, he's a... Uh, Mediator? Yeah. Okay, so you think maybe it refers to his mediating role? Okay. God's house is spiritual. If you think God's house is heaven itself, then you're going to just assume that that's what he's talking about there. Um, if you think about it, he goes away, and he, what's Jesus coming back for? To establish God's kingdom, right? Like he's going away, and then he's going to come back and establish the kingdom. So what's he talking about? 
I think of Matthew 25, 31, where Jesus says to the sheep, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from, this is 25, 34, come you are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You know, that's the preparing. He's, he's preparing positions or he's preparing a place for them in God's kingdom. I mean, if it literally refers to something physical that's coming down, that would work too, you know? So, but I, I don't think you can get from this the idea that at death we go to heaven, even just by itself, regardless of all of the other verses that would contradict that. And I think you have to be really careful with John 14, 15, and 16, because at the end of it, Jesus says, I've been speaking to you in figurative language. I know I just kind of like bashed Origen and Jerome and Eusebius for using figurative interpretation, but there is a time and a place for figurative interpretation, especially when Jesus Jesus straight out says, look guys, I'm speaking to you in figurative language. And they say to him, oh no, we we understand what you're saying. Yeah, it's fine. We we, we get it. Uh, It's in John 16, probably towards the end. Yeah. 1625, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name. And they say in verse 29, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Plainly. Oh, okay. So, no, they don't say they understand it all. They say, now you make sense. (laughs) I think sometimes it must have been very difficult to be a disciple, right? Where... Sometimes he talks and you're just like, John turns over to Andrew like, what was that? Did you understand that? And Andrew's like, I don't know. Ask Peter. And Peter's like, Jesus, is this the time to restore the kingdom? You know, like Peter's always like the first one to raise his hand and thank God for people like that, right? All right. So that's a little bit about John 14. The next one up is 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8 which reportedly says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It doesn't actually say that. It reportedly says that. It's the way people hear it. Now this one, people will say, before we get to that, I'm going to show you this, this webpage. All right, this is a John Piper article. John Piper does some stuff really well, and sometimes he's terrible. And this is one of the times when he's terrible. He writes, the intermediate state is the time between death and the resurrection. Some have held that during this time we are unconscious or possibly even go out of existence. We do not think that this is biblical. The biblical evidence is that our soul continues on after death and that we remain conscious in the intermediate state while awaiting our final destiny of resurrected existence in the new heavens and the new earth. Notice the lack of Bible verses in parentheses there. (laughs) Anyhow, he goes on to use uh, some Bible verses here. First, Paul spoke of having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. That's um, That's our next one, so just introduce it now. Notice, first of all, that Paul speaks of death as a departure from the body, not into temporary nothingness or unconsciousness, but to be with Christ. If we are with Christ, once we have died, then we continue existing. Second, notice that Paul speaks of this state as very much better than the present state. It would be hard to say such a thing of a state of complete unconsciousness. Particularly, when we consider that Paul's passion was to know Christ, it would seem that the reason the state beyond 
death is better than this present life is because we are with Christ and know it. If we are suddenly unconscious at death until the resurrection, wouldn't it be better to remain in this life? Because at least then we would have conscious fellowship with Christ. So that's his case for the consciousness of the soul in the intermediate state on the basis of Philippians 1.23. And then here's our verse, which is why I brought this up. And then here's the thief uh, on the cross, right? So we have Christians, very popular, influential Christians that are using these very texts to say exactly the opposite of what I've been saying in this class. It's good for you to be aware of that, right? Second, Paul also said that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. And that therefore he would prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. First, it is significant that he speaks of the possibility of being absent from the body. This implies that we indeed do have souls which continue existing after the body dies. Second, notice again that he speaks of this state as his preference, which indicates, as in Philippians 1.23, that we not only continue existing between death and the resurrection, but that we are aware of our existence. And then he's got a couple of other verses there. And he references this systematic theology book by Wayne Grudem, which basically just teaches all the typical misunderstandings of the Bible that are popular today. What's that? Oh, yes. He's like the present day incarnation of John Calvin. I mean, all right, that's saying it too much. But he, he, is, he loves John Calvin. I mean, he might have been named after him. I don't know. But uh, all right, so this is a good example of the kind of thing that you might come up against with reference to, I think I said 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians uh, 5.8. And how they would use it is to say, well, he prefers to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord, which definitely means that he's talking about a soul continuing to exist after the body dies. Okay, Now, let's go back to that verse and look at it ourselves. 2 Corinthians 5.1 says, For we know that if the tent, that is, our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in the, this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent we groan, being burdened, not that, the, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, the key part here to understand is that the Apostle Paul is talking about bodies as tents. Did you see that in verse 1? We know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. Right? So he's talking about your body as a tent, a temporary home. That's what a tent is, right? And he says, yes, our body is a tent, but... God has for us a building, a house. What's better, a tent or a house? A house, right? Try living in a tent for a little while, and then you'd be like, man, I wish I had my house back, right? And so what he's saying is our current body, our body as is presently constituted is like a tent. However, 
the body that we will get, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. This is something that God has made in the heavens. Obviously, all this stuff is speaking in a metaphorical sense, right? Is compared to a house. Now he says in verse 2, For in this tent, in this present body, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Something that comes from heaven, right? God from heaven establishes and renews our body to make it permanent. Unlike a tent, the resurrected body lives forever. It's eternal. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. I love that verse 3, because he does not want to be a disembodied soul. That's what it would be to be naked. And he says it again in verse 4, For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. He does not want to be a disembodied soul, which is what it would be like to be naked or unclothed. The goal is not that we would escape from our tent and flit off into heaven and then come back later. No, the goal is that we would go from our tent to the house, that God would put the house on top of the tent, so to speak, right? To be clothed further. So he's kind of mixing metaphors. He starts with tents and houses and then he moves to clothing, right? And maybe that is where people get confused here. I'm not sure. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God and so on. We should be a good courage. Verse six, so we are a good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. To some degree right now, so long as we are in our present bodies, we aren't with the Lord. Why? Because if the Lord were here, it would be resurrection day. If the Lord were here, our bodies would be transformed by the power that God has given him to subject all things unto himself. If the Lord were here, we would have heard his voice and either awakened out of the tombs or meet the Lord in the air if we are alive and remain, right? So he says, look, so long as we're in this situation, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Verse 8, yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. I think the implication is in a new body. Right? He doesn't have to say it over and over. He's already said he doesn't want to be naked. He's already said he doesn't want to be unclothed. If he's away from this body, what is he in? He's in a new body, the resurrected body. Okay, And I think it's important to recognize when you have somebody like the Apostle Paul, who has written quite a lot, that you want to look at the totality of his books, of his letters. This is the same Paul who wrote 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter of the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about the sleep of the dead. In uh, verse 6 there, when he's listing off all the resurrection appearances, he says, there are 500 brethren, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Why is he using the metaphor of sleep? Why doesn't he say they've gone home to be with the Lord? Because he doesn't believe they're home with the Lord. He believes that they're asleep. You look at verse 18. Again, this is a, a different book, but it's the same author, right? He says, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Again, using sleep to refer to death. Or verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Again, using sleep as a metaphor. He does this all over the place. In verse 51, he explains the mystery. 
Now look, the Corinthians have already received this letter before 2 Corinthians came along. So unless you're going to contradict something, and I think you would have to have some sort of a introductory part where it's like, I know I said this before, but this is the way it is now. I mean, he could contradict. Right, he could say either he was wrong or he could say it's different now because of this, that, or the other, right? You know, like there actually is a place in 1 Corinthians 5 where he says kick somebody out. And then in 2 Corinthians, it's like, hey, restore this person. So like, yeah, you can, you, can, you can change between letters, but you need to make that clear. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51, we read, we read, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, <laughs> but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will put on imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then, not the moment you die, but when this happens, then will come about the saying written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? What takes away the sting of death? Is it escaping our body like Plato and John Piper teach? No. What takes away the sting of death is resurrection at the last trumpet when the Christ returns. Then we will say, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? Does that make sense? I think it's uh, important to say he used that same put on uh, language here as he does in 2 Corinthians where he's talking about clothing. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, yeah, like verse 53 here. He uses the same language, put on, as if talking about clothing. For this perishable must put on imperishable. Right? So what Paul says is that the I, the me, the mind, whatever, is clothed with this tent. But what I want from God is this house because I want to be clothed with that because if I have this house suit or whatever you want to call it, then I am imperishable. I have this resurrected body. I have this invulnerable nature now. And the time at which I get my house body is when Jesus comes back. So, so long as I'm in the present body, I'm away from the Lord. And I would rather be home with the Lord how, how is that going to happen? Well, according to 1 Corinthians 15 and like a million other places, the Lord comes back. You don't go to him. He comes to you. Let's look at just a couple more of these. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, classic text, right? Verse 13, great for funerals as well, this verse, because it has uh, comfort. It says comfort one another. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who have gone home to be with the Lord and have passed away beyond this physical realm, and are staring at God forever on a cloud. No, Sean. No, Sean, that's not what it says. It says about those who are asleep. Asleep. Does, does anybody know what sleep is? Look, whatever sleep is, whatever it means, it can't mean awake. Okay, because sleep is the opposite of awake. So whether you want to say sleep means totally unconscious, but whether you mean whether you think it means the soul is dead until it gets miraculously brought, whatever you think it means, it just can't mean awake. That's the only thing it can't mean, and that's exactly what John Piper is teaching. It does mean 
And it's not just John Piper who singles one guy out. He speaks for a lot of other Christians. Yeah. Did Jesus say that exact word to Mary when he was born already Lazarus from the dead? Yeah. Yeah. John 11, he says uh, he's asleep. And then his disciples say, well, if he's asleep, that's good. You know, he'll, he'll recover. And he says, no, he's dead. <laughs> right. And so, uh, for if we believe Jesus died, okay, so on. This is the juicy part, the exciting part. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So this is the same person. This is the same Paul. Or we could look at, I mean, we've already looked at some of these before, but 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, this is the same person. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Look at the association of these events together. Christ is coming, Christ who is to judge the living and the dead, right? So you have judging the living of the dead, his appearing, and his kingdom. That's when all the action happens. The action happens when Jesus comes back. In the future, he says, 2 Timothy 4, 8, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Notice how future-focused he is. It's that day. You see that? He will award me on that day. Not only me, those who have loved his appearing. He's the righteous judge. He's going to reward, but it's going to be on that day. And there, there are other verses too. I mean, I, I don't want to wear you out with verses. Because <laughs> there we have one more. One more here. Philippians 1.23, depart and be with Christ. So we'll start in Philippians 1.21, where the apostle says, For to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. What do you think? When he dies, the next thing he knows is going to be the kingdom. Right. I think that's a good solution. The next moment of consciousness, he's with Christ. The Apostle Paul is in prison. He's got some Christians out there that are working against him very strongly. They're preaching Christ out of jealousy and strife. And he's very concerned about the churches and he's like I said he's in prison which is really nasty in the ancient world and as a result of all this he's contemplating death it's very likely that he's going to get the death penalty in fact eventually he does get the death penalty by the Roman government and when you're contemplating death let's say you're in a prison and it's not a nice place not like our prisons today but you know just like a miserable hole in the ground somewhere you have to have a will to live, or else you will die. He has to decide. He has to say to himself, I choose to live. I choose to persevere. I choose to write this letter to the Philippians and continue my ministry and not give up the fight. He's got to choose that, right? And he's like, I, 
I'm torn between the two. Like in the one sense, I'd rather just pack it in. I'd rather just die because this is so miserable and everything I've worked to build, people are trying to tear down and it's just so stressful. And we're talking about a man who has got scars all over his body from times he was whipped, from times he was beaten with rods, from times people threw stones at him. He's just had a really, really tough life. <laughs> but I think more than many of us imagine, it was probably just painful to move for this man. And he says, I, I, I don't know what to do. You know, I'd rather just depart and, and, and be with Christ. I'd rather just depart and be with Christ. That's far better. But it's more important to you that I stay alive, that I keep fighting this so that I can be of service to you. I'm with Rebecca. I think Paul simply skips over the intermediate state because he knows that death is like time travel, right? The moment you die, the second later you open your eyes and there's the Lord. Uh, re recently at a conference, one of our pastors named John McCabe was telling a story about how he almost died. And he was, as a result of that, they did some sort of surgery on him. I, I don't remember what it was, something about his uh, intestines, I think. And he, they did the surgery and I think it, to some degree it was successful. And he was in the ER and he was, he just felt really bad. And there was this nurse there helping him and he really believed that this was it. You know, he was kind of like fading in and out. Like he knew he was about to die. He just kind of made peace with God, you know, as, as you would do in that kind of situation. You're like, God, well, thank you for the life that you've given me. I, uh, and, and he started thinking about his, what he would see next which is seeing the Lord. That's what he wants to see. And then everything just goes dark. He's just, then a second later, he opens his eyes and he's, he's looking for the Lord. And just then the nurse, who was a large woman, was bent over with her butt facing him. <laughs> That's the moment he opens his eyes some hours later and he says, that's not the Lord. <laughs> and she says, you got, you got that right. <laughs> uh, so they, they, they almost lost him and they brought him back. And, you know, this was like some years ago. I mean, he's been recovered since then. But, uh, yeah, that's the way it is. You know, the moment you die, the next moment, boom, it's, it's, you know, the kingdom age. You know, you're meeting the Lord in the air. And so you depart this life and the next moment you join Christ in the air. That's what he had preached. That's what he had taught. And, and I think that is better. I think he's just skipping over. See, people that don't believe in the sleep of the dead, they don't understand how it works. They think, oh, you're asleep for all these millions of years or thousands of years or hundreds of years, whatever. That, not from your perspective. And so that's something that is important to take into consideration. All right. We know he believes in resurrection. And we know that he believes resurrection happens when Christ comes, not when we die. So death is gain. How is death gain for him? Right? Uh, do you remember what he said there? Oh, there it is, verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How is death gain? How does that make sense? Well, look, if you're suffering, relief from that suffering is a win. You see what I'm saying? So 
If he says death is gain because he will have relief from prison, from persecution, from constant backbiting, from physical pain as well. And he'll be resting in peace until the Lord comes. It would also be, he talks about wanting to receive a better resurrection. Um, and he also knows that being a martyr is very important. I don't know, like saying that maybe his death, even if he does die, that would impact his ministry just as much as him being alive. So, oh, to die as gain could mean that he is going to have a good impact on the, the Christians because maybe they will be emboldened. Actually, he does say that there are people that are emboldened by the fact that he's in prison. He does say that. So, like, if he dies as a martyr, maybe people will be more proud of him, or people will rise up and say, oh, well, Paul's gone, I better get out there and do something, because, like, we were just, like, sitting on our hands since he was doing it, but now, yeah, I could see that. And also the fact that to die in Christ's honor would be something he'd be very much proud of. Right. To die for the faith is like what Christ did, so it's sharing in his sufferings is another phrase he uses. All right, well, that's good. Let's, uh... Any other thoughts on difficult verses? Yeah, go ahead, Bill. I have one question. And if you look back in the Old Testament, we had a friend we were discussing these things with. And they bring up Ecclesiastes 12, 5 through 8. I wondered what you're taking. Yeah, sure. That's the Spirit goes up to God who gave it or something, right? Some, said, some say Spirit came James, and then we say Spirit out of the Virgin say the breath. I'm going to start it in verse 6. Remember him, this is Ecclesiastes 12.6, Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed, this pitcher by the well is shattered, and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Uplifting, cheery verse there. So far as I understand it, this word spirit here is probably ruach, right? Yeah, which is, um, let me just highlight it for you so you see the definition. So this is a definition of this Hebrew word. You see it means air in motion, blowing, wind, what is empty or transitory, spirit, mind. Definition one, breath. Think of it like this. In the beginning, when God made us, He breathed into our nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So, in a sense, every breath that any of us ever takes after that is an extension of that first act of God, giving the breath to, the, to humans. And then, in the end, when we come to breathe our last, it's like that spirit, that breath, that life force, whatever it was, is now gone. And it just like, it just goes out. A similar verse is in Acts 7, Acts 7, like 59, yeah. This is when they stoned Stephen, right? In 59 they say, and they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And in that case, I don't think it is talking about breath. I think it's, I think it's talking about his life, you know, that Jesus would look after him, so to speak. And then in the next verse, it says, and when he had said this, he fell asleep. <laughs> so, and, and this is something interesting too that you should, you should take, take thought of, is that it says he fell asleep. 
It doesn't say his body fell asleep. The way we talk about people today is very different. Like for example, on the news, they would say the body of a 30-year-old male was found on the side of the road or something like that. Is they never say Bill or John or James was found, right? It's always the body. Because we have this sense that, we're, oh, that's not the real person. That's not the real person, that's just their body. Whereas ancient Jews don't have that hang up at all. They're like, yeah, Stephen fell asleep. You remember that part where, the part where Mary was looking for Jesus? They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said, they have taken away the body of my Lord. No, no that's not what it says. They have taken away my Lord. She's looking for the dead Jesus, right? I mean, it almost sounds offensive to our ears. The dead Jesus, oh, the body of Jesus, right? We just have that nice little way of saying it. That's not the way Jewish people or the Hebrew mindset works. Where's my Lord? I don't know where they have laid, not it, but him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus. Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Of course, he is him. <laughs> he is the one she's looking for. Now, of course, there is a difference between a, a living body and a dead body, and there is a sense in which you're, you're checked out. What was that uh, mythology where they thought the soul like hung out for a little while? This Norse, oh, Norse belief, was it? No, it was like a uh, Taoist or something. Yeah, one of those. Where, yeah, it's, the body gets corrupted by an evil spirit, and there's like a three days of separation where it's like, ah, what's going on? <laughs> you know, it's funny too, like there's some Jewish superstition about that where they will put a pipe into a tomb to let the soul out or something. Yeah, it's like a later Jewish uh, practice. Yeah, because like how else are you going to get out? <laughs> like, look, if you could get out of your body, you could probably get out of the cave. <laughs> right? Yeah. When they took uh, Jesus from the cross uh, after he died, it's not that they wrote his body, they took his body, I don't know. Maybe it says body. I mean, I don't have any problem with body. Uh, there would be a whole bunch of those references. Yeah, it just says they laid Jesus there, right? It says the tomb was close at hand. They laid Jesus there. <laughs> I mean, they, if it said Jesus's body, that would be fine. I don't, I don't have a problem with that. I'm just saying, like, to not ever say it the other way is definitely funky. Okay, are we, are we good with it? Do you have another one? He's going to hit me with another one. Yeah, yeah, that's got to be a, a tie-in to Genesis 2-7 where he took the dust of the earth and formed it and breathed into his nostrils the um, breath of life. Breath of life, breath of life yeah. So, yeah, I think you're right about that. And Ecclesiastes already says in chapter 9, twice, once the dead know nothing, and the other, that there's no activity in the grave, or thinking, or planning. So I think that's, that's pretty clear. I'm just going to do a little bit of review for, before we take our final exam. Just kidding, there's no final exam. <laughs> Madison's like, what? 
All right, just, just pull out the syllabus ever so quickly. I wanna just tie everything together. I've got like 10 minutes or so. Tie everything together and then review your assignments and then we'll, we'll call it a day. How about that? We started with Kingdom Restoration, Kingdom Covenants, Kingdom in Isaiah, Kingdom in the Other Prophets, and then Future Kingdom in the New Testament. Those first five lectures, all of that refers to the biblical evidence for the coming kingdom. All right, it's all focused on kingdom as hope. That's another way to say that, kingdom as hope. And as you recall, I use this analogy of a coin. And there's the heads and the tails. What, is the two, what are the two sides of the kingdom coin? Right, restoration and judgment. And they happen more or less at the same time. When the kingdom arrives, it's like the sheriff who comes to the wild west. Those who are criminals are going to be upset because their fun is over. Those who are victimized or are trying to live the right way are rejoicing because now there's going to be justice and peace in the earth. So that was the whole idea of the kingdom. And then I took this little segue in lecture six to talk about the sleep of the dead because it's related. I could do another lecture on hell because this is somehow related to the similar subject. And there are really, I'm not going to do that, but we could do that. There are really good resources on that on the website, rethinkinghell.com. All right. Then what we started doing is looking at more of the present aspects of the kingdom with three lectures on that. Right? So that's the kingdom gospel, the idea that it's not just something we look forward to, but it's also part of our message that we preach. And do you remember what the three tines of the gospel fork are? Kingdom, cross, resurrection. Right, kingdom, cross, resurrection. And so frequently today, what people do is they just take the cross out of that and they say, hey, this is the whole gospel and nothing but the gospel. But that's not true. The kingdom is the foundation of the gospel, and then comes the cross, and then comes the resurrection. And then we looked at kingdom way, and this is the whole idea of living the kingdom proleptically, which is to say you find some way to embody the kingdom. You find some way where you can express the truth of the future and the wholeness of the future and the love that will permeate and pervade the entire world, you find some way to enact that, embody that, live that out today as a witness, as a testimony of what is to come. So that's what I mean by kingdom way. It's just shorter than saying lifestyle. I think the word lifestyle is awkward anyhow, personally. So I said kingdom way, but it could just as well be kingdom lifestyle. And then you have kingdom allegiance, and that's where we got into the political implications of believing Jesus is Messiah in the first century. From a Jewish perspective, there were definitely political implications, and from a Roman perspective, there were huge political implications about understanding uh, Jesus is king. And then what I did is I showed you the oath of allegiance that new citizens to America have to take. And in the first line of that oath, it says that you renounce all other sovereignties and potentates and other kingdoms and nations and that you are going to give absolute 100% allegiance to the United States. And my point by showing you that is that countries know what allegiance means. I, I think we have to get straight that our allegiance as Christians is first to Jesus. Jesus says, unless you 
put me ahead of your father, your mother, your friends, your own life even, you cannot be my disciple. So that's the kingdom of allegiance. We have to be allegiant to our king, first of all. And then be a good citizen too, in America or whatever country you live in. Be a good citizen. Uh, pay your taxes. Give honor to whom honor is due. Uh, I know it's very popular to make fun of the president of the United States on the talk sh uh, radio, on the late night shows, right? Well, I don't think Christians have any business doing that. That's not honoring the king or honoring the ruler. They're going to be wrong about a lot of stuff, whoever they are. And they're going to be right about some stuff too, right? And sometimes they're right more than they're wrong. I don't know. I'm not worried about all that. My point is, as kingdom Christians, we're called to show honor. little spiel on that. But yet, if they ask us, or if they tell us, you can't preach the gospel. Sorry. My, my primary allegiance is with Jesus as Lord, right? And with God's kingdom. So that was the allegiance. Then we looked at this whole number 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 was all history. So if you didn't like history, you would not have liked that. <laughs> but if you did like history, that's, that's the sweet spot for you. So that was the kingdom advocates. That's the people who believe in the kingdom. That's when we went in the other room. Remember that? And we looked at all of these different people, right? Right from the first century to the second century to the third century, and then last of all, the fourth century with Lactantius, who was, I think, the, I think he was the tutor of Constantine, the emperor. And then we looked at where did the kingdom go? How did the kingdom get lost? Well, there were these high power intellectuals who were fighting against it. They were saying it's too unsophisticated, too pleasure oriented and to Jewish. And so they fought against the kingdom, and you know what? They won. The majority did not any longer believe in the kingdom for a long time. I'm sure there were some people that still believed in it in every generation. I don't, I don't know why I'm sure of that. I guess I, I believe that because I believe that God still works through people, right, to show them his truth. And especially once you get the Bible on the market, everything changes right and that's what we saw a little earlier right where we looked at the kingdom found or rediscovering the kingdom in the 16th 19th and 20th centuries among the anabaptists among the adventists like the church of god and among the liberal scholars and so then we just concluded here with interpreting some misunderstood verses so that you would have an answer for everyone who asked you for a reason for the hope that is in you um, and I just ask that if you do get lock horns with some other Christian, that you carry yourself in a gentle and respectful manner. <laughs> so you can, you can win the argument and lose the person. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you in class. Well, I hope you enjoyed this class and this lecture. If this is something that you would like to recommend to your friends, please share this on social media. And also, if it's not too much trouble, please give Restitutio a review in iTunes so that other people can find this podcast. I wanted to read out some quick feedback from Menashe David Israel from episode 100, the Kingdom of Allegiance lecture. That was number nine in this class. And uh, what he wrote is a, it's a bit too much to read out here, but I'll just give you a little taste for it. He says, I enjoyed this talk. I have been suspicious for some time that we who speak of the kingdom of God were not feeling the full weight of the language describing the heavenly country. It is encouraging to be seeing that I was not off track and to be put on the scent of others that are on the right one. 
yourself, N.T. Wright, Anthony Buzzard. The kingdom of God truly is a political entity that will be realized on earth in full physicality and not metaphysically as many seem to suggest when Jesus returns. Looking at the kingdom of God in this way has further interesting implications and brings up some interesting questions. What is the entire naturalization process in the kingdom of heaven? Does the fact that everyone must be born again, become new creatures, mean that everyone who confesses that Christ is king is automatically a natural-born citizen? Perhaps that is equivocating on language. I'd be curious to hear your input. Well, Menashe, I appreciate your feedback here. I don't have time to go into all of what you said, but I would certainly agree that the entry point of citizenship into God's kingdom is a belief in the gospel, hearing the gospel, understanding it, accepting it, repenting, and bearing fruit. And that's directly from the parable of the sower and the seed that Jesus taught what is required for the good soil. When one does that, gets on board with the gospel about the kingdom, about the cross, about the resurrection of Jesus, that at that point, God adopts that person into his family and when that person confesses Jesus as Christ, I mean, what is Christ other than king? So that is the moment of shifting allegiance from whatever the person was into before to King Jesus as the sovereign ruler of the age to come, who also exercises authority in the present as our Lord and Savior. So thanks for taking the time to write in. If you'd like to read the rest of Menashe's comment, I hope I'm saying your name correctly, head on over to restitudio.org. He talks about what a republic is and sets the record straight there. Thank you. appreciate that. That's episode 100, Kingdom Allegiance. Check it out if you haven't already. Also, I just want to let you know that I am going to be down in the Atlanta area on September 18th to 22nd teaching basic Bible doctrine. So if you want to take that class at the Atlanta Bible College, it would be great to meet up in the classroom and spend a week together. That's four hours a day blocks for five days, Monday to Friday. If, however, you're not able to travel and you'd prefer to take this class online, Atlanta Bible College also offers a Zoom hookup so that you can live stream the classroom and also be able to ask questions and engage. So if you're interested in that, once again, please contact David Krogh at theatlantabiblecollege.com. You'll be able to find his contact information there and he can let you know what's available, whether coming in person to take the class for credit, auditing, or participating via Zoom. So hopefully some of you will be interested in that. Stay tuned this Sunday for an interview with John Shaneheit about faith. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.